All types of conniving methods are still being used to prevent Negroes from becoming registered voters. The denial of this sacred right is a tragic betrayal of the highest mandates of our democratic tradition. Yes, it is. And it's still going on today. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. I am... From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. And we've got too much show for me to list all of the other affiliates today, so take my word for it, blanketing planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. In 1957... Eight years before the landmark Voting Rights Act of 1965 would finally be adopted into law, Martin Luther King Jr. in his famous Give Us the Ballot speech said, quote, So long as I do not firmly and irrevocably possess the right to vote, I do not possess myself. I cannot make up my mind. It is made up for me. I cannot live as a democratic citizen, observing the laws I have helped to enact. I can only submit to the edict of others. So our most urgent request, he said, to the President of the United States and every member of Congress is to give us the right to vote. With Martin Luther King Day commemorated on Monday, I am happy to note that the Voting Rights Act that he fought for so long and so hard would eventually be enacted in 1965, but I am saddened and frankly infuriated to no end that even today, uh, I think 58 years later, if my math is right, after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, there are folks still trying to reverse that act. And as surely as they reverse the rights of uh, Roe v. Wade over the past year, they are continuing to have success in rolling back the Voting Rights Act. The heart of the Voting Rights Act, Section 5, was gutted by our right-wing Supreme Court back in 2013. And yes, now they are coming for the rest of it. In a courtroom this past week in the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, a three-judge panel all of them appointed by Republicans, examined whether private individuals and groups like the ACLU even had the right anymore to sue in order to block discriminatory voting laws under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And based on the hearing on Wednesday... Hey, things don't look good right now, Desi Doyen. No, they do not. And the broader implications of this ruling, not just for voting rights, should the uh, it be determined that there's no private right of any private group to sue on these things, the broader implications of it are just staggering. Yes, they are. We will be joined momentarily by one of the ACLU attorneys working on that case. 
to talk about those staggering uh, possibilities here of what could happen, to describe what this case means and how even as the fight over that case continues, massive discrimination against black voters in Arkansas, yes, in the South, as you heard Martin Luther King speaking about there in his Give Us the Ballot speech, that discrimination is still being allowed to continue in election after election. At the same time, Republicans, meanwhile, continue to institute more and more restrictive uh, voting laws under the guise of preventing voter fraud, despite the lack of that fraud around the country, at least the type that could change, you know, large elections. Nonetheless, well, we may have found the fraud that those Republicans are so certain is happening by Democrats everywhere. Perhaps they are so certain it's happening because they're the ones who actually seem to be committing it. So here we go again. The wife of an Iowa Republican who ran for Congress in 2020 was arrested on Thursday and accused of casting 23 fraudulent votes on behalf of her husband. In an 11-page indictment, prosecutors allege that Kim Fong Taylor, quote, visited numerous households within the Vietnamese community in Woodbury County, Iowa, where she collected absentee ballots for people who were not present at the time. Taylor then filled out and cast those ballots herself, according to the indictment, quote, causing the casting of votes in the names of residents who had no knowledge of and had not consented to the casting of their ballots. Taylor is accused of signing voter registration forms on behalf of residents who were not present. For example, although these documents required the signer to affirm that he or she was the person named in them, Taylor signed them for voters without their permission and told others that they could sign on behalf of relatives who were not present. That, according to the Justice Department's announcement on Thursday. In all, the wife of this Republican elected official, Jeremy Taylor, who ran for Congress in 2020, According to prosecutors, uh, she engaged in 26 counts of providing false information and voting, three counts of fraudulent registration and 23 counts of fraudulent voting. Jeremy Taylor, for his part, ran unsuccessfully in 2020 in the Republican primary for the U.S. House and then successfully as a candidate for the Woodbury County Board of Supervisors in the fall. Each charge brought against his wife carries a maximum five years in prison. The aim, prosecutors allege, was to get her husband elected to public office. And then there was this one also from this week in upstate New York. Also another Republican, a former upstate New York election official, a Republican election official pleaded guilty on Wednesday to federal identity theft charges arising from his fraudulent use of voters' personal information to apply for dozens of absentee ballots in 2021. Wow. In entering his plea in U.S. District Court in Albany, the former official, Jason Schofield, admitted to requesting the bogus ballots through a state website in his role as the Republican election commissioner in Rensselaer County, according to federal prosecutors. So he used his access to the system yep. as an election insider yep. to do this? Yep. 
Schofield's guilty plea is part of a broader federal inquiry into potential ballot fraud across Rensselaer County, just east of Albany. The voters whose names and birth dates that Schofield was able to use, he was uh, in order to obtain the ballots. Uh, Either they had no interest in voting, uh, absentee or otherwise, they had not asked for absentee ballots or his help in getting them, or they did not know what he was doing with their information, according to the indictment. So, yeah, he was able to get this information because he was an insider. He knew he could look up the records of these voters. Oh, they don't often vote. He could then look up their uh, information, such as their birth date, etc., Go ahead and request a ballot on their behalf and have it sent to him instead. He uh, he's a county election commissioner. He was from April 2018 until his resignation last month. He admitted on Wednesday that he had falsely certified on the ballot applications that he was the voter requesting the ballots, according to prosecutors. He was, of course, able to do this because he had access to that insider information. Last June, if this story sounds familiar, this Rensselaer County uh, election fraud by insiders, well, it's because last June, Kimberly Ash McPherson, we reported it on this show at the time, a former member of the Troy City Council and also a Republican, pleaded guilty to a federal identity theft charge after being accused of casting three absentee ballots using the names of uh, of those other than her own in 2021. Ash McPherson was helped in the scheme by an unnamed person who worked at the Rensselaer County Board of Elections. According to court documents at the time, she's waiting sentencing. I suspect Mr. Schofield uh, may be that helper or... It could be someone else also in this huge scheme that was going on in Rensselaer County. Schofield is a former Troy school board president. He's scheduled to be uh, sentenced in May. He faces up to five years in prison on each of the 12 counts to which he pleaded guilty, according to U.S. the U.S. attorneys. His abrupt resignation from his $90,000 a year position as election commissioner came about two weeks after Rensselaer County lawmakers had approved his reappointment to the job despite the federal charges against him. Real classy move, guys. According to the Times Union of Albany. So this keeps happening. These schemes by, yes, Republicans. So maybe, just maybe, I don't know, that's why they like to pretend that Democrats are all over the country doing the very same thing, but much worse, because they're doing it. Or maybe they just don't want Democrats to vote legally. Because that's what it kind of seems. The Republican Party filed a record number of lawsuits aimed at curtailing voting in 2022, with many aimed at restricting voting ahead of the midterms. That, according to a new report on Monday, the progressive legal outfit Democracy Docket released a study finding that out of 175 democracy related lawsuits filed last year, 93 of them were anti-voting lawsuits. In other words, they were trying to make it harder to vote or they were challenging the counting of voters' lawfully cast ballots. 
And most of those suits, yes, came from GOP operatives. According to the report, the anti-voting suits sought to suppress voting in a handful of ways by, quote, tightening the rules around voter registration, adding more obstacles to mail-in or in-person voting processes, and more. And as a matter of fact, as I was, you know, going through those uh, Martin Luther King uh, speeches, his uh, give us the ballot speech, it sounds a whole hell of a lot like the things that he was complaining about in 1957 sound a whole hell of a lot like the things that Republicans were trying to do over this past year to try to prevent, you know, certain people from being able to vote or to have their vote counted. The more things change, the more Republicans stay the same. Yeah, except back at the time, it was Democrats uh, who uh, carried that role in the South. Those Democrats, so-called Dixiecrats, yes, eventually became what is now the Republican Party. Yeah. Yeah. Democracy Docket was founded by Mark Elias. He's a Democratic voting rights attorney. Uh, He previously served as Hillary Clinton's legal counsel in 2016. So feel free to keep that in mind. But as uh, Kyla Philo reports at uh, Talking Points memo this week, the numbers do not lie. 23 of the anti-voting lawsuits were filed by the Republican Party itself. More specifically, the Republican National Committee or the National Republican Senatorial Committee, the National Republican Congressional Committee, or regional Republican parties trying to prevent voters from being able to cast their vote. The report charges, quote, the GOP establishment is becoming more litigious than ever and is turning to the courts to achieve its anti-voting and anti-democracy ends. Uh, Ironically, those very same courts are making it harder for people who aren't Republicans, for private individuals, for groups like the ACLU, the NAACP, etc., to be able to file suit to protect the right to vote, as we'll talk about with my guest in a moment. Democracy Docket also found that the lawsuits came mostly out of Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin last year, three battleground states that doubled as petri dishes for the 2020 evidence-free big lie that the election was somehow stolen from Donald Trump, despite any, any evidence to support that false claim. Uh, the uh, after a year in which the Republican Party filed a staggering amount of lawsuits in an attempt to dismantle mail-in voting, to upend election administration and otherwise undermine the democratic process, courts and voters largely rejected this strategy. The report notes ultimately finding that uh, most of the anti-voting lawsuits for now anyway fizzled last year in democracy in 2022 democracy won at least in the courtroom the report concludes in 2023 however uh that record may not hold up as our guest joining us momentarily will be here to explain but in the meantime the republicans are continuing to fight to make it harder and harder for people to vote again certain people Ohio Governor Mike DeWine just last week signed a major overhaul of state election laws in the Buckeye State that will require voters, among other things, to present a photo ID at the polls. Under the new law, voters must present a much narrower 
type of photo ID from uh, among a more specific group of IDs when they cast their ballots in person. Although the ID doesn't need to have their current address on it. So there's that, whatever that's worth. Qualifying IDs, however, include an Ohio driver's license, state ID, U.S. passport, passport card, military ID, interim ID issued by the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. Uh, No student IDs on this list. Now, previously, ID was already required for voters in Ohio, but the list of IDs was broader and it included alternative forms of ID, uh, such as utility bills or bank statements. You didn't have to have these very specific ones that they know a whole bunch of certain voters do not have. According to data from the U.S. Census and the Ohio Bureau of Motor Vehicles, there are nearly one million Ohioans who currently lack the specific type of photo ID that would now be required to vote in the Buckeye state. It's maddening because this is something that I have been uh, yelling and screaming about for, well, about 20 years now on this program at bradblog.com, warning people about. And, you know, what is so insidious about this is that it sounds normal. Hey, oh, I think there should be voter ID. You should have to show an ID in order to be able to vote. That sounds incredibly reasonable. And the fact is, it is already the law in, well, all 50 states when registering to vote under federal law. You have to show an ID. But also, it's all you know, that's for registering to vote at the polling place. It's already the law in the majority of states around the country, like, for example, Ohio. But what they're talking about doing here is narrowing the number of IDs that would be valid in order to vote. And the only reason they're doing that is not to stop fraud, but it is to stop voting, to stop voters, to stop the one million or so in Ohio who just tend to be. You know, uh, minorities, uh, low income, income, the elderly who do not have disabled the the type of who do not have the type of ID that will now be required unless this uh, law is challenged in Ohio to be able to vote. And will restrict the people who have been voting just fine for decades now and will now have to scramble to find this new kind of very narrowly tailored type of yeah, ID. Yeah, it's not like they're, you know, uh, showing evidence of people who showed up with some sort of fake bank statement or something to vote in Ohio. Yeah, and your 90-year-old great-grandmother won't be able to vote if she can't figure out how to get these new IDs. As part of the new rules, any Ohioans who are 17 and older will be eligible to receive a free state ID card. Oh, well, then we don't have to worry. They're going to get a free state ID card. Nothing to worry about. Why are you complaining, Brad and Desi? (laughs) Well, of course, in order to get that so-called free state ID card, they have to go through the effort and, yes, the expense of getting one, which is arguably a poll tax and... For some disabled and senior voters, it's potentially next to impossible to get. To receive one of the so-called free state ID cards, one would need to show a birth certificate, which according to uh, that that same uh, data from the Ohio Bureau of Motor Vehicles and the census and so forth, um, 161,000 Buckeye staters, many of them elderly, 
uh, do not have a birth certificate, they would have to obtain one for $21.50, you know, in order to receive their so-called free ID. Presuming that they can make the necessary trips to the Bureau of Motor Vehicles in order to get it, to take off the work that would be required to do so, etc., etc. None of this is about avoiding fraud. Uh, if it was, you know, they would uh, block the things that apparently Republicans enjoy doing when they're committing massive voter fraud around the country. So the new voting restriction also requires uh, completed mail-in ballots to arrive within four days uh, after Election Day instead of 10. So if you mail your ballot two or three days ahead of Election Day, well, it will then be up to the post office to decide, not you, if your vote you know, will be received and counted on time to avoid disenfranchisement. It requires voters who want to vote by mail to submit an application at least seven days before Election Day instead of three, making that part of the process more difficult as well. It permits only one single ballot drop box per county. Again, no matter how big or small that county may be. Or how many people might need to use it. And that drop box must be installed at the County Board of Elections. So no, that's no matter how far folks may be, how, how far they may live from the Board of Elections, presumably in the county seat, there will only be one drop box. It eliminates in-person voting the Monday before Election Day. Why? Don't know. Presumably because that was too convenient for too many voters, particularly for those who didn't get their absentee ballots before Election Day or in time to get them back, which will be harder now, and who therefore might need to vote on the Monday before Election Day in order to avoid the long, long, long Ohio lines at the polls on Election Day. Why are they so long? Well, a bunch of reasons, but among them, the fact that many Ohio counties still force voters to vote on 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems, which take much longer to vote, uh, in addition to you know forcing the voter to cast an unverifiable vote, it just takes much longer than it does to vote on a simple hand-marked paper ballot. The new law also gives provisional voters until four days after the election to provide missing information to election officials instead of the seven days allowed previously. So if you are forced to cast a provisional vote because, let's say, you forgot your ID or it blew away in a tornado or it floated away in a flood, or you did not know that there was this new type of ID that is now required, well, now you got just four days to correct that problem by getting back to the county uh, voting headquarters somehow to supply the additional information in order to see your vote counted, which many voters simply cannot do. Shortening the length of time they have to do it now from seven days after an election to four does nothing but make it harder to disenfranchise more voters. That's what all of this is about, even though Governor DeWine, a Republican, uh, said everything went well in uh, the past in 2022 and in 2020 in the elections. Well, it went too well. Obviously, they have to restrict voting now to make it not so easy. He is supposed to be one of the uh, so-called moderate Republicans. He's not one of the crazy right Trump right-wingers. And yet, here he is, once again, making it more difficult to vote uh, in 
in Ohio. Voting rights advocates had urged him to veto the bill. They said it will create barriers to the ballot, particularly for the elderly, for rural voters and members of the military. This new law will not make elections more secure, said Jen Miller, the executive director of the Nonpartisan League of Women Voters of Ohio, but it will make them more administratively burdensome for election officials, more expensive for taxpayers and less accessible for voters. No doubt groups like the League of Women Voters will now be forced to file suit to try to block the worst parts of these bills. But hey, Guess what? There's a new effort among Republicans, most disturbingly among Republican judges, to make it more difficult, if not impossible, for groups like the League of Women Voters and the ACLU and the NAACP to challenge such laws under the Voting Rights Act. And that effort this past week appears to be showing even more signs of disturbing success, at least in a case out of Arkansas where the discrimination against black voters could not be clearer. One of the attorneys fighting that good and disturbing voting rights fight in that Arkansas case, which will make its way to the Supreme Court and affect everyone, that attorney joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to do it. Please stop by Bradblog.com slash donate to make an automated monthly pledge of any amount you like or even just a one-time-only contribution to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. The fight for voting rights, civil rights, and to save our planet continues. Please help us continue that fight independently over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate right now. Go ahead, do it right now. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Let me tell you something, children. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, yeah. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. I let it shine, let it shine to show my love. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. You know, uh, even in Mart, uh, at, uh, on Martin Luther King Day in 2023, we are still fighting to protect the survival of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Back in 2013, as the Voting Rights Act was nearing its 50th anniversary at the time, and uh, a, a then 5-4 to four Republican majority on the U.S. Supreme Court gutted one of the landmark pieces of civil rights legislation's central mechanisms. Section 5 of the Act mandated that new voting rules and laws adopted by jurisdictions around the nation with a long history 
of discrimination at the voting booth would have to be cleared by either the Department of Justice or a three-judge federal court panel before such changes to voting laws could be put into place in an actual election. Proponents of those new discriminatory laws would have to prove in advance in the pre-clearance process that the laws would not, in fact, have a discriminatory effect at the ballot box. The court, in its infamous 2013 opinion, didn't actually touch Section 5 of the law itself. Instead, it found that Section 4, the part of the law that established which jurisdictions with racist voting histories, mostly but by no means entirely in the Old South, uh, which uh, Section 4 determined which of those jurisdictions would be bound by the pre-clearance requirements set forth in Section 5 of the VRA. The groundbreaking notion when the law first was established in 1965 was that Section 5 would prevent violations of the Constitution's 15th Amendment, barring racial discrimination at the ballot box, before those violations could irrevocably taint an election result. And it worked. Section 5 worked very well for nearly 50 years. The Voting Rights Act itself had been reapproved time and again by Congress, four times most recently by a Republican majority Congress and Republican president just four years earlier. And each time that it was approved for another extension, the law was tweaked or amended to improve it, as was the formula to determine who would be covered by it. At the time that SCOTUS gutted Section 5 by gutting Section 4 of the law back in 2013, the president of the NAACP noted that over the past 25 years, quote, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act had stopped over 1,000 proposed discriminatory voting changes from taking effect. It worked very well. That is, until the Supreme Court gutted Section 4 of the law, describing the formula for determining which jurisdictions would be protected by Section 5 as antiquated. Writing for the court's right-wing majority at the time, Chief Justice John Roberts, long an opponent of the voting rights uh, protections against discrimination, declared in his opinion, essentially, that Section 5 had worked so well for so long that it was no longer actually needed to protect racial minorities. Writing for the minority on the court at the time in response in the Shelby County versus Holder case, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg famously argued, quote, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. The court's right-wingers, however, were unmoved, and in any event, they cited Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which barred discriminatory voting laws in all 50 states, even though under Section 2, one had to wait until such a law was actually enacted before one could file a lawsuit challenging its constitutionality. Since then... As you may have predicted by now, jurisdictions previously covered by Section 5 have enacted newly discriminatory laws one after another. And along with them, Section 2 lawsuit challenges have skyrocketed. 
And as you may also have predicted by now, that means that the same right-wingers who targeted Section 5 previously have now set their sights on gutting, yes, Section 2 of the landmark civil rights voting law. Since it is still standing, and though somewhat less effective than Section 5, it is being used to eventually overturn new laws that block racial minority access to the ballot box, even if it's more difficult and can take longer to do so. Well, on Wednesday this past week, a federal appeals court heard arguments over whether the Voting Rights Act allows private citizens to sue under Section 2 to enforce the prohibition on discriminatory voting practices. Attorneys for the ACLU and the Justice Department told a three-judge panel on the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals panel that a judge in Arkansas in an Arkansas redistricting case was wrong to say that only the U.S. Attorney General could file such lawsuits. U.S. District Judge Lee Rudofsky, a Donald Trump appointee to the federal court, made that conclusion as he dismissed the lawsuit by two groups that were challenging Arkansas's new state house districts. Sophia Lynn Lakin, co-director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project, told the three-judge panel during a 44-minute hearing this week, quote, For over 40 years, dozens of federal courts have heard hundreds of Section 2 claims brought by federal plaintiffs. In that time, not one court denied the plaintiffs their day in court because of a lack of private action. The ACLU represents the Arkansas Public Policy Panel and the Arkansas State Conference NAACP, which sued challenging the new map for the House districts in Arkansas that were approved by a state panel back in 2021. The groups argued that the redrawn maps diluted the influence of black voters in the state. Now, never mind for now the merits of that actual case. The plaintiffs charge that the state discriminated against minority voters when they created just 11 majority black districts instead of the 16 that would more closely mirror the state's African-American population. But this appeal regards whether the private groups are able to sue at all under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, as the Trump judge argued that Congress never said as much explicitly in the text of the Voting Rights Act as written. An attorney for the state said the 1965 law never explicitly allows for private citizens to enforce Section 2 and noted that Congress had never added such language over the years. Quote, Congress has left this as an open issue, the Arkansas State Solicitor General argued. Jonathan Backer, an attorney with the Justice Department, argued in response, quote, it's Quite clear from the text of the statute and the legislative history and ratification history that Congress has always intended private enforcement of voting rights statutes. Incredibly, nonetheless, as CNN's Tierney Sneed reported after the Eighth Circuit Appeals Court hearing this past week, quote, a federal appeals court appears open to further shrinking the scope of the Voting Rights Act in a case that could lead to another major Supreme Court showdown over voting rights. She cites two of the three judges on the panel, all of whom are Republican appointees, 
who appeared to support Arkansas's argument that private individuals and groups may not use Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act to file lawsuits to prevent discrimination, that only the nation's attorney general may do so. Really? Yeah, really. Joining us now to uh, throw cold water on this entire fresh nightmare and explain that I must be dreaming here is the ACLU's Jonathan Topaz. He's a staff attorney in the ACLU's Voting Rights Project who both worked on the appeal and served as the trial attorney in the initial Arkansas case. Uh, he has litigated voting rights cases in federal and state courts nationwide, including at the U.S. Supreme Court in cases related to redistricting, felon disenfranchisement, the census, and other discriminatory barriers to the vote. Jonathan Topaz, uh, thank you, sir, for taking time to join us today on the broadcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, uh, I'm sure I got something wrong in my uh, layman's explanation of Section 4, Section 5, and now this challenge to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Please feel free to correct me where I did and explain how I mostly, uh, almost certainly got this challenge to Section 2 wrong, because it seems on its face, after hundreds of Section 2 claims by private individuals and organizations and dozens of court cases over four decades. It seems impossible to think that any that, you know, nobody ever noticed that there was no private right to action until now. Really? Yeah, I, I think, unfortunately, you got most of it right. Um, I, I, I think it's hard for most people to fathom that this is a question that needs to be litigated in 2023. Um, as you noted, um, there have been hundreds of cases over the mm -hmm. course of Section 2's history litigated by private plaintiffs in many of those cases. I think at least 10 at the Supreme Court and at least 18 in the Eighth Circuit, where we were arguing earlier this week, um, uh, were brought by private plaintiffs. And, um, you know, there, there is Congress had opportunities um, in 1982 when they amended the Voting Rights Act, uh, as recently as 2006 when they reauthorized the Voting Rights Act, to correct any mistakes it saw out there as mm -hmm. private plaintiffs brought cases across the country, which, you know, would have been pur purportedly an open defiance of what Congress had intended, and Congress never saw fit to correct anyone. No. And, of course, there is the... I'm go sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say, uh, I, I, I suppose uh, someone wanting to argue that there's no private right of action here can say, well, they worked on this bill, they amended it four times, and yet they didn't uh, you know, specifically say there should be a private right of action. That argument might make sense, but uh, as you note, it had already been used that way, correct, before the amendment process? In other words, there had already been all of those cases, and that therefore meant that Congress would have, when they amended it, said, hey, they were wrong to do that. We we're specifically saying you can't do that anymore. That's right, and, and I should know further that there was a 1996 Supreme Court case called uh, Morris versus Republican Party of Virginia in which five justices of the Supreme Court, so a majority, held that there was a private right of action under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Mm. Um, and so in when Congress reauthorized the statute in 2006, they weren't just aware of private plaintiffs bringing cases around the country, they were also aware of this Supreme Court decision in which a majority of the court found that there was a prior right of action under Section 2. Um, 
did they so, actually did they actually find that or simply by not tossing it out that they you know essentially agreed that that's the case i mean did they explicitly say yes uh there is a private right to action in section two they did it, it was a case that involved section 10 of the voting rights act and mm-hmm. whether there was a private right of action there and so there is a dispute between the parties as to whether or not that constitutes a holding but um, there were uh, there was a three uh, judge plurality and then a two judge concurrence and mm-hmm. between the two of them between those two opinions five justices explicitly found that there was a private right of action under section two and that that was uh, one of the core reasons why there was also a private right of action in section ten of the mm-hmm. Voting Rights Act and so that determination about section two was actually core to those five justices reasoning as to uh, uh, as to the holding in that decision so um, that that decision Morse is, is is explicit and has never been mm. repudiated or, or rebuked since then and and just so I'm clear here because I, you know like I said this is it feels like a dream a nightmare that you know we we can't actually be uh, going down this particular path when it seems so absurd so uh, pardon me for asking a dumb question but The state is arguing here that only a U.S. attorney general or the Department of Justice itself uh, could then file against uh, discriminatory laws under Section 2. Nobody like a a state AG or governor or something like that. It's it's a U.S. attorney general only. That's correct. I mean, in 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 most cases, uh, authorizing the state attorney general wouldn't help much since uh, since it's often states who are the defendants of Section 2 claim. And I think what's important to note, Brad, is just how devastating the practical consequences of this would be. Um, Private plaintiffs bring by far the most Section 2 claims, um, and they also are responsible for most of the meritorious Section 2 claims that have been brought in recent decades. Um, And so the Justice Department, who submitted an amicus brief in our case in support of finding a private right of action, has noted that the Justice Department simply doesn't have the resources to uh, effectively um, enforce Section 2 on its own, Mm -hmm. and that uh, private plaintiffs are an important partner for the Justice Department in enforcing this crucially important federal law and ensuring um, uh, the proper enforcement of it. So, you know... Uh, if if it were only left to the attorney general, mm-hmm. um, uh, it would it would be uh, pretty disastrous. Yeah, I mean, and if 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 that was the case, that would mean, for example, you know, under a Republican president with an attorney general like a Jeff Sessions or a Bill Barr, et cetera, we might go years without any enforcement of the Voting Rights Act uh, at pretty much any level, it seems to me. Uh, Jonathan Topaz, is there, can there be any possible explanation for this particular legal argument, uh, that, you know, other than that this is simply meant to clear the way for discriminatory voting laws? I mean, it's not as if, uh, you know, it offers some sort of equity to the defendants for such laws. Uh, the only thing that would happen here, it seems, is that there would be fewer such challenges because there was only ever one U.S. Attorney General at a time, essentially, correct? That's right. Again, yeah, as, as I was just saying, you know, private plaintiffs have just been instrumental in ensuring enforcement of Section 2 of the Act. You know, I think the argument on the other side is is um, is rooted in this, this uh, you know, judicial, uh, you know, since 
since basically the, the past couple of decades, an increasing focus on the text of statutes um, and creating kind of stricter barriers for people to get into the courtroom. You know, but what we noted in our brief and what we noted in argument this week is that if you even look at, you know, if you look at the text and structure of the Voting Rights Act, putting aside the overwhelming precedent, mm-hmm. um, you'll see that the text and structure is very clear that there uh, that pri- Congress did intend for uh, a private plaintiff to enforce this act. And so, you know, we think that the uh, argument in terms of text and structure is misplaced, even if you set aside the overwhelming precedent and Congress's own statements, I should note, from 1982, which are as clear as day that um, a private right has been intended since the act was passed in 1965. It's hard to find a clearer piece of legislative history uh, in any case than exists for the for Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. It seemed absurd when the uh, lower court judge tossed out this case uh, on, on this basis, and uh, everybody seemed to think, well, this is ridiculous, it was a Trump judge, it's never going to be upheld at the Eighth Circuit, and then... Uh, three-judge uh, panel hears it at the uh, Eighth Circuit, and at least the reporting is that two of the three judges seem to be receptive uh, to this notion. Is is that the sense that you got from uh, from this week's hearing? You know, Brad, we, we don't love to, to read tea leaves. Uh, you know, we, we uh, thought that uh, we went into the argument confident, and we and we came out confident. We're cautiously optimistic in the result, and we're you know just based on the the, the substance of our argument. And um, mm-hmm. you know we anticipate that the panel will agree with us both as it relates to the precedent and it relates to the text and structure of the Voting Rights Act. So I'm not sure I fully agree with maybe some of the reporting that um, was particularly pessimistic about the outcome. Well, I'm, I'm actually glad to hear that, and I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around, when did this seemingly new idea arise, that Section 2 somehow bars a private right of action? Was that only brought up once it began to be more frequently used in the, uh, in the absence of Section 5 after the uh, Selma case in, in 2013? Is that why we all of a sudden have this new focus on uh, how Section 2 is supposed to operate after 50 years? You know, on, honestly, it, it, it really just came up during this past redistricting cycle. In our Arkansas case, um, the uh, district court judge brought it up of his own volition. Defendants who were arguing in the appeals court this past week didn't even bring it up themselves. They were asked by the district court judge whether or not uh, they, you know, their their views on it and asked for briefing. And I think basically after the district court, in our case, um, became the first court in the history of the country to find that there is no private right of action, that, that caught the attention of other states and litigants across the country who began who began raising it but mm. you know it really this was really thought of as a settled issue as you noted for decades and decades and so you know even folks you know even attorneys who are representing states being sued didn't even think to raise this argument because mm. again this issue had been settled for a long time that private plaintiffs 
are are authorized to sue under Section 2. It seems like uh, the court, the uh, Supreme Court, which I see as corrupt and stolen and extremist and everything else, seems like they sort of sent out a bat signal. There was uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch in a uh, 2021 voting rights case. Uh, he sort of referred to it as an open question whether... There's a, a private cause of action in Section 2. Clarence Thomas apparently signed on to Gorsuch, Gorsuch's concurrence in that case. Um, and it seems like it sort of sent a signal out to folks like Judge Rudofsky, the circuit court judge, to raise this as an issue because it really came out of nowhere. It begs the question... You know, the Supreme Court has heard a lot of cases, including Section 2 cases, as you noted, over the years, over the last four decades. What happens if this goes to the Supreme Court? <clears throat> they determine, oh, yeah, there is no private uh, uh, right of action for Section 2 cases. What happens to all of those Section 2 cases that they have already decided over all of those years in that event? Yeah, and, you know, Brad, that's just that 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 is just one of the practical consequences or sort of things that 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 make the state's argument sort of so uh, uh difficult to imagine which is to say that the supreme court as recently as october heard a section 2 case did not raise the issue of a private right of action even though defendants in that case had raised it at the lower court so um, you know, the Supreme Court it doesn't appear to be on their radar or at least it doesn't appear to be preventing them from hearing and asking questions on and ultimately ruling on Section 2 cases before them. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it really hasn't... Per you, you, you mentioned the concurrence, and there are, I, I suppose, a couple of justices who have called this an open question. We obviously disagree, but mm -hmm. it doesn't seem to be preventing the Supreme Court or other courts from hearing Section 2 cases and deciding them on the merits, which, of course, is just more evidence for the fact that um, uh, that that private plaintiffs can, as they have for decades, bring these sorts of actions. I, I feel like, um, and and maybe you can disabuse me of this as well, Jonathan Topaz. I feel like uh, Supreme Court and the hard right uh, that it now represents are, in fact, targeting the Voting Rights Act, essentially for elimination um, any way they can in sort of the way they targeted Roe v. Wade for so long and eventually killed it. Am I over-worrying about that, or am I over-worrying just as much as I was previously over-worried about Roe v. Wade? You know, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't say, I can't predict behavior. Obviously, there have been cases in the recent past that have done damage to the Voting Rights Act. You know, you mentioned Shelby County, which mm -hmm. has had profound impacts on the ability for states to much more easily pass discriminatory laws. We talked in passing about the Brnovich case, which made it harder to establish certain Section 2 actions. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, I, I can't say about um, moving forward, but, you know, as some justices on the court have noted, Section 2 is one of the crown jewels of uh, American legislative history. It's one of the finest statutes ever passed. Section 2 is absolutely essential in terms of ensuring equal voting access around the country. And, you know, we will do everything we can to to defend it, um, even as it has been um, um, harmed in recent years. 
Finally, it seems to me that uh, no matter how this is decided by this particular three-judge appeals court panel, it seems to me this case is going to make its way to the Supreme Court. Uh, In fact, it may have been designed that way by opponents of the Voting Rights Act. If so, Jonathan, what what is the roadmap and the timeline from here and and how uh, before it ultimately reaches the high court, uh, if it does, and it's eventually decided there, how does all of this affect your case and other Section 2 challenges that are brought by private parties and organizations and so forth in Arkansas and elsewhere. Can you sort of draw us the potential roadmap of sorts for where this could go and and how it could operate until it's uh, ultimately determined one way or another at SCOTUS? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I think the timing piece is always um, is always a little difficult to determine. It depends on, you know, things beyond our control, like how quickly the court will rule and what um, the losing party decides to do as to an appeal or a stay or, or, or what have you. Um, but I think, you know, so, I, so, so there may be a long road ahead, there may not be. You know, I think what you hit on, though, is the practical consequences of, of this decision. You know, the um, district court, in our case, um, actually said in his opinion that we had a strong merits case. Um, and um, this was a, a case involving the Arkansas State House, and um, we had established at trial, or at least we put forth at trial, that the State House map should have had five additional majority black seats mm-hmm. um, instead of, in most cases, it's, it's you know maybe maybe one, maybe two, that there were five additional majority black seats. And again, mm-hmm. the district court found that to be at least preliminarily a strong merit case. And you know this. This entire process is a great disservice to the people of Arkansas and yep. black citizens in particular in Arkansas who will have, you know, elections being held under maps that uh, do not allow black Arkansans to elect their candidates of choice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, I think it's important to not lose sight of what this, what this really means for those folks. Yeah. You know, luckily, other Section 2 cases are moving forward in, in courts that have either found that there's a private right of action or, or where it isn't being raised. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, there, there is a, a, a significant impact. No, regardless of what happens with the outcome of this case, um, it will have been, uh, uh, there will have been several elections taking place with um, discriminatory maps in, in Arkansas, which is just a, a, a terrible shame. Yeah, I, and, and that's a great point, because no matter how, even if this goes well for you, it goes all the way to the Supreme Court, you win at the, at the Supreme Court, it's only at that point, however long that takes, that you then have to come back and, 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 and try the actual case, the actual merits of the case that you were attempting the you know the, the to fight the discrimination in in the first place and you're right we could see one election after another under those terrible maps uh, but again underscores where I started the segment the importance of section five that would have uh, prevented all of this from happening in the first place it is absolutely maddening uh, Jonathan Rick Hassan the election law professor at UCLA School of Law said quote in any fair reading of the Voting Rights Act this argument made by Arkansas is an easy loser. But we will see, he added, uh, noting sagely, I'm afraid, I don't count anything out these days. 
as well he should not with this uh, stolen and corrupt extremist Supreme Court, in my opinion, not necessarily in Jonathan Topaz's. He is a staff attorney at the ACLU Voting Rights Project. You can uh, follow their work, of course, on Twitter at ACLU, and you can find Jonathan on Twitter as well, Jonathan Topaz. Jonathan, really appreciate you joining us. Good luck in this case, and uh, please stay in touch. We'd love to talk to you as, as it moves forward. Thanks very much for having me. You bet. Thank you. And I just to underscore again how maddening it is that the GOP Republicans have really figured out, oh, you know what? We can break the law when it comes to voting rights. We can do that <clears throat> and get away with it for a few years several until years. they stop us and a few several, elections. Yeah, and several election cycles before the courts actually step in. And that's just, I think, what is so you know grotesque and obscene about mm-hmm. these these uh, the these voting suppression laws yep. that Republican states are implementing because they get away with it and voters can't do anything until after the harm is done. Right. And it's often in several cycles, several election cycles, election after election. They win in this case in Arkansas, even if they ultimately lose this case, because they ran on these purposely discriminatory maps last year in 2022, and they will continue until... You know, even if they get ultimately a good decision from the Supreme Court, and there is absolutely no No. guarantee of that with this court, no matter how insane this case actually sounds. And it's kind of disgusting. Uh, Not not just kind of actually disgusting. Yep. Happy Martin Luther King Day. We got to get out. My thanks again to our guest, Jonathan Topaz of the ACLU Voting Rights Project, to my producer, as ever, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free, along with all of our broadcasts at bradblog.com. That is free to all, made possible by those of you who... Hit one of those donate buttons at bradblog.com or go straight to bradblog.com slash donate. Our thanks for that. Drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Mastodons, you will find me at the TheBradBlog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate.